Hello. Welcome back to Matinees on Main Street. This is the podcast about the history of the movies, and my name is Alan. As the 20th century began, the movies continued to change, and some of the important people involved with these changes were already dropping out, while others now sensed the money that could be made and started to join in. By 1902, people like William Kennedy Laurie Dixon were already out of the picture. Dixon was now living in London, and while he was still connected to the American Mutoscope and Biograph Company, his role was becoming more and more honorary. He did film during the Boer War, and his role within the Edison Company as the developer of the kinetoscope made him a legal target, so he quietly slipped into the background. The Lumieres were also fading from view, as their interests had always been more about mechanical and chemical development of items of use in photography rather than in making moving picture shorts. On the other hand, the opportunities to make money from the process had become so enticing that a number of new people were appearing, and it's the lure of financial success that drew many of them into making movie shorts over the next several years. I've already briefly mentioned George Spoor back when I discussed moving picture development in Chicago, and I'll soon discuss William Seelig in more detail. So on this episode, I'll discuss the man who started the moving picture industry in Philadelphia long before Sylvester Stallone ran up the steps of the Philadelphia Museum of Art. His name is Sigmund Lubin. Zygmunt Lubczynski was born in Posen in 1851, and that would make him one of the oldest men to work in film in this period. Posen was southeast of Prussia and had been incorporated into Prussia for some time. His father seems to have been an ophthalmologist. Zygmunt did the same and graduated from Heidelberg University. Unlike many of the later Jewish Eastern European studio heads in the film industry, Zygmunt was college-educated and had a promising career. He may have arrived in America as early as 1868, but this plan fell through. At the time, Zygmunt had not yet earned his degree, but he seems to have had a cousin already in the States. Lubczynski believed he could succeed by selling jewelry to the Native Americans which was a rather odd idea considering the semi-state of war that existed between the Native Americans and the United States government at the time. But he believed he could market his jewelry to the tribes in California. He soon returned to Prussia and pursued his education. Lubczynski seems to have been able to avoid the Prussian draft and the Franco-Prussian War and instead returned to America in time for the centennial of 1876. From the beginning, his goal was to make money, and he soon Americanized his name to Sigmund Lubin. At first, he continued to craft eyeglasses and pedal optical items, but he eventually established an optical shop in Philadelphia and married the daughter of the man who ran the boarding house he stayed at. 
Because of his knowledge in lens-making, as well as his close proximity to the theater district, he came in contact with many kinds of developing businesses that required optical lenses, including magic lantern operators. At the age of 45, he was in New Orleans when he came across a small vitagraph business set up by William Rock, a man who had earned the nickname of Pop Rock. Obviously, this name didn't come about because of candy, but because he, like Lubin, was an older man in a younger man's business. If you remember from episode 16, I mentioned that Philadelphia was where Charles Francis Jenkins was attempting to impress the Franklin Institute with his claims of independently developing the machine that Edison was starting to market. Jenkins gave a demonstration of his machine there about a week or so before Christmas in 1895. About a week later, Woodville Latham showed up with his idoloscope and also gave an exhibition. Well, Lubin bought his first projection machine from Jenkins, and the two altered it to meet his own needs. In comparison to others, Lubin's specialty was optics, so it shouldn't be surprising that his machines would produce a much better image than most of the others. He had photographic experience, so it wasn't hard for him to use the camera or to develop the film. What Lubin offered was a cheap moving picture machine that didn't need a territorial license to operate. In comparison to the thousands of dollars needed to purchase a territory, projector, and a set of films from Raff and Gammon, Lubin offered a cineograph for $150 along with five films. And over the next few years, the prices dropped even farther. By 1900, it's surprising how many cineographs could be found across America, especially in the South. His first film was a little unique, A Horse Eating Hay, but that was soon followed by a Girls Having a Pillow Fight film, an imitation of an Edison short that influenced everyone else at this time. Lubin started to show his films to his family, friends, and neighbors. He held these showings in his room above the optical shop, and they were all thrilled to see themselves in this local version of popular shorts, newsreels, and comedies. At the time, Lubin lived in a Philadelphia brownstone apartment, so it's hard to imagine how he managed to build a small stage in whatever small patch of grass or dirt sat in the back of these buildings. At this time, Lubin had also begun making glass slides for the illustrated song market. This business opportunity gave him contact with actors who worked in front of the cameras, and while this situation was probably handled at the optical shop, he may have done some filming work at home. This caused something of a problem with the neighbors, and it was even worse for his home situation such as the time that trained monkeys started playing with the family stove. This led Lubin to move his makeshift studio to the roof of a building located permanently near a burlesque theater. There, he would continue to hire theatrical help to perform in his films. Among his early recreations of the films of others, one really stands out, his recreation of the Corbett Fitzsimmons fight. 
Obviously, Lubin didn't dupe the Latham film, but instead relied upon written descriptions of the championship bout. Considering the problems facing the filming of these early fights, in some ways the Lubin films were a good option if you were truly a fight fan. Strangely, he had the actors who were portraying the boxers wear fake mustaches, even though both Corbett and Fitzsimmons were clean-shaven. In a sense, these early recreations of other people's films, such as The Miller and the Chimney Sweep, Baby's Dinner, or Pillow Fight, were simply attempts to learn how to film, direct, develop, and exhibit small movies. Lubin's knockoff of these films gave him an opportunity to make movies that were better than those on the market. Even if they were recreated and looked a bit fake and amateurish, at least you could see what was going on. In 1897, the quality bar was still set very low, so that it would have been impossible not to do better. By about 1898 or 1899, a shift was starting to take place as the once-infant industry that was making novelty moving picture machines had started to transform into an industry that was making moving pictures. The machines were still selling, but as tastes in moving picture novelty was changing, the fledgling filmmakers had to learn new things. The growing awareness of the potential for big money was telling the manufacturers to focus less on the machines and more on the films that ran inside of the machines. The Edison Company was very aware of this situation and dealt with this issue by filing lawsuits against the other machine makers. It's quite obvious that the Edison's reasoning behind the idea of cornering a market was to force its competitors out of business. But as I showed in the last episode, that scheme wasn't going to work out as easily as Edison and Gilmore had thought. Mutoscope Biograph was their biggest competitor, and those two companies were tied up in a personal war that would keep film production down for both. The company most aligned with Edison was Vitagraph, and they didn't even have a machine to sell. All they wanted to do was make and sell movies, and they did so through Edison. Even in France and Britain, this change was also becoming obvious. The Lumières had already passed their torch to Leon Gamont and the Pathé brothers. Gamont's secretary, Alice Guy, was already making proto-comedy and drama films, and Pathé would soon follow. Robert Paul was England's most mechanically inclined filmmaker, and he, too, was stepping aside for people more interested in making movies than machines. At first, it was hard to take Lubin seriously as a film producer. The problem was his fight films, and fight films in general. Because there was such a large number of people who disliked professional boxing, everything that was associated with them seemed ridiculous or even immoral, and that taint affected Lubin's reputation. Even the idea of making a fake version of something that was immoral to begin with only made things worse for Lubin in the eyes of society's quality people. The word disreputable turns up in historians' descriptions of him not because they thought so, but because America's moralists at the time thought so. 
An added problem was the odd place that the fight films found themselves in America. Logically, if America was to ban boxing, which it was doing at that time, then it should also have banned fight films. But the argument that it really wasn't a real fight but simply a movie of a fight seemed to make sense at the time. This contradiction had a lot to do with the Victorians' belief that the root problem of boxing was gambling, which didn't taint the movies. Victorian attitudes were losing sway to modernist ideas, but the Victorian cultural view still held the upper hand, so some kind of halfway logic ruled. In this moral void, Lubin was able to stake a claim that all he was doing was recreating a fight. In other words, they were acting out a fight. No one was getting hurt, and no one was betting on the outcome. Lubin was simply directing his two fake boxers as they followed a script while acting in front of a camera as each round progressed. It's the same kind of logic used to differentiate between an actor shooting another actor with a fake gun as opposed to the real thing. Theoretically, everyone should know the difference. But when Lubin filmed two young women in a staged sword fight along the Shukil River, plenty of people believed it was real, even with Lubin running the camera. At first, Lubin didn't advertise his fight films as fakes, although he never claimed that they were official films of the fight. But when the official films failed to meet public expectations for whatever reasons, Lubin films were the best ones to see. After all, there were no problems with the fighters, with the positioning of the sitter, cameras blocking spectators, issues with lights or the heat, cloudy weather, and all the other problems that haunted the early fight films. This was much the same thing as the faked war films. Watching the fake charge up San Juan Hill proved to be better than watching the real footage until the imagery and camera positioning in these early newsreels got better faking a newsreel event was not considered completely disreputable although lubin was geographically outside the effective parameters of edison's legal team he eventually became the target of their lawsuits there seems to have been three reasons that made him a target for the edisons the first was his reputation as a duper of other people's films. To be fair, almost everyone was making copies of other people's films to one degree or another, but Lubin did it with much greater frequency, to the point that his reputation was built on it. The second reason he may have been targeted was that he was regularly advertising in the trade newspapers, such as the Dramatic Mirror, and he was rather flamboyant in doing so. Those newspapers were based in New York City and would have been an easy target for Edison or his lawyers to spot. And finally, his cineograph was infiltrating the New York City market. It's possible that if he had kept himself under the radar, as have the Chicago firms, he may have been less of a target. Regardless, Edison's lawyers served him in 1898 not long after their camera patent was finally approved. Lubin was furious because he knew that Edison had not invented the movies 
or their equipment and considered him a shyster for claiming it. He soon found out that Metascope Biograph was challenging the patent and he believed that they would have it overturned in court. If you remember from the last episode, Edison's lawyers wrote and rewrote the application until it was acceptable to the patent officers in the United States Patent Office. While the sweeping terms of the patent made Lubin and his lawyers nervous, they had faith in the law. But in 1901, when Judge Wheeler blindly ruled in Edison's favor, it was apparent that Edison's fame had much to do with the ruling. Lubin's lawyers agreed that maybe their client should return to Europe for the time being. It seems that Lubin had been planning his move for some time. For starters, he stopped advertising prior to Wheeler's ruling. Also, he had arranged for his wife, Annie, to stay in Philadelphia and run the optical business, as well as surreptitiously run the film production side of it if a customer requested it. But as far as manufacturing the cineograph was concerned, Lubin moved it to Berlin, where he would run it. He had become aware that the Germans were showing an interest in his projectors and cameras, so for the time being, he would be based in Germany. During this time, Lubin stayed in contact with his lawyers and even occasionally traveled to America to visit his wife. It's through these contacts that Lubin got a sense of the appellate court ruling going his way as he started to run ads for his machines in the American trade papers again. And by the time of the ruling, he considered himself victorious. This was the ruling where the appellate court overturned Wheeler's decision for failing to establish boundaries for defining what was created by Edison and what was borrowed from earlier machines. Lubin quickly returned to America, and while he left the running of his Berlin company to others, it soon closed. There are a few newspaper articles that suggest that cineograph movie theaters existed by late 1900 on the West Coast. In particular, the Pacific Northwest seems to have been generally the place where the first movie theaters started, although information on them is sketchy. I'll be talking about that situation in a few episodes, but the question I can't answer is whether these theaters had any influence on Lubin opening up his own movie theater. The problem is that no one can define when the theater first opened. Film historian Charles Musser had a photograph of a Lubin theater that is dated 1899. The theater advertises two movies one involving battles from the Spanish-American War and the other called A Trip to the Moon, which is actually not the one we generally think of from 1902. You know, the film with the moon with a rocket in its eye. Instead, it's an earlier Milliez film known as The Astronomer's Dream, which American film companies had titled A Trip to the Moon. I'll talk more about that episode when I discuss the film, and by the way, that episode is coming up soon. Anyway, Joseph Eckert, Lubin's biographer, has not found any viable addresses for a Lubin theater before 1902, so the issue is fuzzy. It's possible that in 1899 or 1900, Lubin actually opened his own theater. 
Up to that time, he had been showing his movies at Brandenburg's Arch Dime Museum in Philadelphia. As comparison, the Eden Musée in New York was several notches higher in class than Brandenburg's business. The Eden Musée had been founded as a wax museum, but Brandenburg's place definitely had all the exotic, tacky allure of a dime museum, kind of like Barnum's old business. But by 1899, the Arch Dime Museum had become quite respectable. Like the Eden Musée, its freak show business had been sidelined to a curio hall, while it focused on a vaudeville stage type of venue. Singers, dancers, comedians, monologists, and the like. And the theater reliably showed cineograph movies. It was probably during that panic over the Edison suits when Lubin left for Germany that cineograph cut its ties with Brandenburg, one way or the other. Lubin's involvement in running a theater was primarily based on keeping his options open in case the courts ruled against his machine manufacturing business. And it's hard to know how successful he was. During this time, he continued to show his films at Arches Dime Museum, so whatever business he may have developed from his theater or string of theaters, they certainly didn't dampen Brandenburg's interest in using the cineograph in its theater. To be honest, Philadelphia seemed to take Lubin's machine to heart, in a way that I have not seen anywhere else. Part of it was his being a Philadelphian, but it was also the quality of his images as well as his choice of movies he duped. Chicago didn't embrace Seelig or Spoor and their machines in this way, and even New York City seemed only marginally interested in Edison's Vitagraph or Mutoscope's Biograph. Even Paris and London were only marginally interested in the cinematic machines made in their locales. But in Philly, Lubin probably could have found exhibition spaces anywhere. And everywhere he showed, his audiences were pleased and his promoters were too. He held summertime shows in the parks and even gave performances in churches. Lubin expanded his market into Baltimore and possibly Atlantic City. He attempted to open a movie theater in Brooklyn but ran into a stubborn property owner. By the late part of the first decade of the 1900s, he claimed to have over a hundred theaters in six states. Lubin also built a film set on the roof of Arches Museum, what was probably the first glass film studio made. There he became more committed to making original films, although he continued to pirate and sell Edison films. In 1903, fight films were still his bread and butter, along with dupes. There was his dupe of the Delhi Durbar, a massive celebration of the coronation of King Edward VII in India. It was officially filmed by Robert Paul and stealthily duped by Lubin. There were dupes of Mutoscope's films about Pope Leo that was filmed by Laurie Dixon back in 1898. The Pope would be dead by the end of that year. Lubin also duped Mutoscope's Ten Nights in a Bar Room as well as Edison's Uncle Tom's Cabin. And with Britain suddenly fascinated with crime films, 
Lubin copied William Hagar's The Poachers, released several months before Edison released The Great Train Robbery. It would be some time before Lubin would depend more on his own films than he would on making counterfeits of other films. At this time, his reputation was rather low in relation to the other film companies, but Philadelphians had a good amount of brotherly love for him. By the end of this decade, he would be considered a respectable filmmaker, and all that bootlegging of other people's films would long be forgotten. Next time, we are finally going to take a look at one movie, one that I mentioned today. That would be George Melies' A Trip to the Moon, the movie that really started people thinking about the possibilities of what strips of film and a movie camera could do. Thanks again for listening, and hope you listen next time. 